Welcome to Imperfect Leaders. We invite the country's most admired leaders in business, sports, and education, and ask them to share practical lessons and advice with our listeners. After all, there's no such thing as a perfect leader. The only question is, are you willing to listen and learn from the very best? If you want to share comments or questions or recommend future guests, visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's show. Today's guest, Alex Spiro, is in the news a lot these days, mostly as the personal lawyer to Elon Musk. Truth be told, Alex is a lot more than a world-class legal mind. He's a leadership advisor to some of the country's most admired artists, athletes, and business leaders, icons like Jay-Z, Patriots owner Robert Kraft, tennis champion Naomi Osaka, and a ton of NBA stars. I couldn't wait to find out how one person could connect and build deep trust with such a wide range of clients. So let's jump right in and ask Alec how he develops trust and creates personal relationships with unique innovators like Elon Musk. You know, he sees things before they happen and he sees things in a unique way and he has unique demands and sees people in a unique way. You, you know, much different and more sophisticated than me perhaps, but I can't just accept that. I can't just sort of be there to ride um, shotgun quietly. I have to be able to, you know, internalize, accommodate and assimilate those sorts of concepts and ideas and try to just help shape the way that they're going to accomplish their goals in whatever subtle way I can and shape the way in which their genius is at least able to marry the rest of us, marry the world. And so that is sort of the complication of somebody that sees the world in a unique way and trying to get that dream to relate with the rest of us. What I'm not trying to do and I don't want to do is curb the creativity and the genius, right? You know, I mean, I, I want to make sure, you know, they don't drive the boat into the rocks. Mm -hmm. um, but outside of that third rail sort of protective measure, I don't want to stifle their genius and their creativity. So it's it's complicated and every interaction and interpersonal reaction um, interaction that they have every way they interact with the world is unique it's almost never before seen or they wouldn't be the genius inventor that they are mm -hmm. and so every interaction then casts a shadow on every other interaction and it's this complicated puzzle of trying to put um again their dream on the map of the world and I want to better understand you as a person Alex and, and learn a little bit more about your own leadership journey Experts rave that you're one of the top trial lawyers in the world, but some pundits uh, also say you either love or you hate Alex. I mean, if this is true, why do why do clients love you, and why do some people hate you? Well, I think uh, clients to you know love me because you know I'm trustworthy, I'm real, and um, I, I like to think I always do what's in their best interest, and I win I win cases. So if clients like me, those are probably the reasons. I, I don't know why, you know, I engender this love-hate thing, if that's right. I mean, I, I've heard people quoted about it. I've heard people relate it to me, even in my everyday life. Um, I think people sometimes mistake, you know, brashness or aggressiveness or whatever I am for, you know, being a jerk or something like that, um, when I don't think that I am at all. Um, but that being said, you know, I'm a, I'm a, um, a work in progress, and I could see how my sort of, you know, charging like a bull ahead in life um, could rub people the wrong way or, or people could get trampled in my path. And so 
you know, there's that. There's also like, listen, people want to shoot at my wings for a variety of reasons. And a lot of the people that I protect and represent, many of which are not public, that are not known. If you can, if you can shoot my, my wings and, and, and shoot at me a little bit, you can damage them. And they're some of the most uh, important people on earth. And so I, there's a variety of reasons, some personality driven and some, you know, frankly, manipulation. But you love you love being a trial lawyer. What what drew you to become a trial lawyer in the first place? Yeah, I mean, once you're once you're in law school by accident, you got to figure out something to do, right? I mean, but it is, I think, a good fit for my skill set and for what my strengths and weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. And so there's that part of it um, that I just think that once you're good enough at the law, you know, what would make somebody a better trial lawyer? than not right if 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 a hundred um harvard graduates sit around trying to write a contract it's going to be very hard to distance yourself in in my judgment mm-hmm. whereas if a hundred of you are in front of a, of the world or in front of a room of people and you have to convince people and out strategize and empathize and make tactical decisions on the fly and memorize and be quick on your feet and all these things again if you're good enough at the law then all those other talents if you if you have them you're going to beat the other guy and so you know there's that I, i'm competitive by nature and and it, this was a little bit like playing sports um and the stakes are very very high and it's very very important and so you feel passionate about it and the truth you know again the truth comes out in courtrooms and so that's a very important noble way to practice law I remember that line from uh, Tom Cruise. What was it? A, a few good men. And he says, so this is what the inside of a courtroom looks like. And I think it was like the first time that he actually stepped into a courtroom. But, you know, what did it feel like the first time that you walked into a courtroom when it really mattered, when your client's fate was on the line? Well, I mean, listen, I, I cut my teeth as a prosecutor. So the first time I was in a courtroom, I could actually picture it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a case that nobody it was a little baby case in the office that nobody else wanted to try that was a complete mess and i raised my hand and i said i'll try it and let's I give went it to alex sure yeah a little bit always and so i took i took the file i went to the courtroom it was like you know picture traffic court um uh, and i tried but but witnesses and cross-examination and summation and all of the same things that happen in in multi-billion dollar cases And I remember trying it. I remember, you know, arguing with the judge. I remember feeling very much like myself in a courtroom. So I love basketball. You know, I'm a kid from Louisville, Kentucky, and we didn't have much else to do but play basketball. Um, And I hate bullying. So let's talk about some cases. So Thabocephalosia comes to mind. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Uh, But tell me the facts of this case and how a young white kid at the time, you, with very little experience, ends up defending this NBA player who suffered uh, really an inexcusable injustice. I had just left being a prosecutor and was trying to figure out my way and what I would do in the non-hospital, non-government world. And somewhat socially, somewhat through, you know, again, just being there for people, I knew some of the NBA guys and had a good relationship with the league and with the Players Association. And so I had taken on a couple of very small cases. You know, someone's got a dime bag of weed. Somebody pushed somebody at a nightclub. Very small stuff where, you know, you know, I would keep their confidences, do what's right, and get them out of it. When the Tabo case happened, 
Um, I remember my phone rang. Uh, there was a lot behind my back of, you know, do we give the kid a chance to take on something bigger? You know, is he somebody we want to bet on, you know, 10 years, 20 years before we should, um, is my understanding was happening behind my back. But what was happening in front of my face was the phone call came in. I raced to the precinct and I met Tabo. We didn't know each other. And he had just, uh, he was grabbing his leg and his leg had been broken by the NYPD. Um, and that's how the, the the journey began. What ultimately came out was that he had been leaving a nightclub. There was a, another incident um, where the police were setting up uh, barricades and things, and they were sh uh, ushering people off the block. He either didn't move fast enough or he caught the officer's eyes because he was a black man in a hoodie. Mm -hmm. And an interaction occurred that has happened too often in this country in which he didn't back down fast enough and the police took um, out their batons and um, um, struck him. Um, and he was set to defend LeBron James in the playoffs and they were the one seed and he went down and he did not play in the playoffs. Um, the case progressed, you know, I conducted an investigation, I defended him and ultimately he was left with the choice. Do you wanna do what people do in this circumstance and take it basically a dismissal, you know, slightly damage your a potential of a civil lawsuit, but take a, in essence what is a New York City dismissal and move on with your life, or you know, which is what everybody does. Or do you want your trial? And he wanted his trial, and so he got it. And, and how did you feel about that? Why, why did it strike a, a personal nerve for you, or was it just the first case that you had to, you know, one of your first cases so you had to do it? No, I didn't. It's not that I had to do it. It wasn't. It's it's that he struck me as very principled um, as somebody that grew up, you know. He had, you know, uh, one parent from Switzerland, one from Africa, saw the world through his lens and saw this as an injustice and something he needed to stand up for. That almost at the exact same time earlier that year, he had actually tweeted um, in re in response to the Eric Garner incident that, you know, it could have been him, I believe was his tweet. Mm -hmm. And for him, he was standing up on behalf of the black NBA players for what he thought was injustice and he wanted the truth to come out. Um, and he wanted to clear his name completely and point out um, the wrong that was committed on him. And I thought it was a noble thing. I mean, I looked at him when he first told me and I saw the resolve in him and I wanted to tell him, listen, you're here on a visa. This is risky. Trials are uncertain um, things. You know, everybody would take a dismissal deal. Are you sure? But once I saw his resolve, we were sort of, you know, on that mission together. And uh, the rest is history. So you're on that mission together. You know, how do you mentally and psychologically prepare for this very high stakes, high profile public case? I mean, is the prep in some ways similar to Tabo's approach to an NBA playoffs, like where it's not like he's going out and practicing his technical basketball skills, but he needs to get his state of mind in the right condition. I mean, is it kind of the same for you? Yes, it's very, very similar to when I would prepare to play sports. Um, hopefully I'm better at this than I was in sports, but yes, it's, it's the same skills. It's, it's practice, it's preparation. Um, it's getting your mind into the right zone. It's talent. It's all those same things, um, playing out in a courtroom and just like a game. And this is no game. There's nothing more serious, frankly, than, than these sorts of trials, but there is a winner and a loser. And so you, you have an opponent and you have to, you have to beat them. So there's a winner and a loser, and and I know that you're the one who's usually throwing the curveballs, and you know, you're the one doing things differently, and you're the one without a laptop in in law school. Um, but what happens when you're on the receiving end of a curveball, and the, and uh, how do you keep your composure in the heat of the moment? You know, 
suppose the other side during a case even starts flat out lying or saying things that just aren't accurate. How I would get really mad and lose my cool. How do you keep your cool? Reminding me of stories of of many of these leaders that you started this with. Um, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, his inner circle used to say to him, like, you operate fully on rage. You need to learn a little grace. And people around me used to say the same thing, basically, right? That I'm so filled with with fire that you, you and yeah, it drives me and it makes me be able to operate on no sleep. It makes me hungry, but that you have to be able to learn to take the punch without just going at one speed. You got to be able to let it hit and then and then respond. Um, and so I'm reminded of 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 what a friend of mine used to say to Steve. The other the other thing is I I reminded of something Elon always says to me, which is number one rule in the galaxy: don't panic. Hmm. Number one rule in the galaxy: don't panic. He and does he does he not panic? Oh, he doesn't panic. Hmm. And and it hmm. it um it's true. You know you have to. And, and in front of a jury, right, something happens that surprises you. You you have to look. It's hard, right, because you're all in. Like, nothing happens. Like, you're not un completely unfazed by whatever the wrinkle is. Yeah. And so, I mean, how do you project an aura of confidence when you've got to feel flustered on the inside? Again, I mean, that's something that comes naturally. The, the sort of, you know, people ask, you know, you go to a law school or something, and everybody says, well, how did you get used to public speaking, and how did you... Um, become confident. And I think if you saw that kid running around Boston at four, I was plenty um, happy to yap. And I was plenty, plenty confident then. And I mean, you know, I've noticed that opponents like to try to shoot at me, you know, people make things up, you know, obviously, you know, the media wants to keep stories alive and, and, you know, report on what they run a report to. So a lot of people, I think, know that I'm not going to be flustered and, and you're not going to be able to within the lines of the courtroom sort of um, out chess me. Um, so they go, they, then they shoot at you. Right. And then you got to get used to that. And so now I've seen that trick played. Um, and I, you know, the people who work closely with me all know how absurd and silly it all is, but you got to get used to that. And you got to get used to being a, a character in the movie. You know, I used to just be the gladiator who swooped into the movie that you become a character in the movie now too. And that takes on its own issues and you, you got to remain cool there too. So another fascinating case, uh, 21 Savage, you pick up the phone, it's Jay-Z, why is he calling you, and what was his ask? You know, there's a lot of issues, and I've, I, I would say that if I've gotten lucky in, in my uh, you know, short career, it's that I've gotten a lot of the cases that I feel passionate about, or at least cases have seemed to appear before me on topics that I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. And at the time... Um, I had commented, and um, it's just true that I was always concerned, you know, people concerned about, you know, Trump for a variety of reasons, you know, everybody has their own political views or whatnot. You know, one of the things that the, you know, executive branch of the government can do very forcefully, immediately, and with very few checks are things regarding immigration. And I had been concerned and had commented about concerns I had Again, just like I had with Eric Garner and the way that implicit bias was affecting the interaction of police and, and regular people in America, I had a concern at the time of 21 regarding immigration. Mm -hmm. And Jay knew that. Um, and, you know, it was this, you know, again, these things, you can't believe that they're real. Um, you know, he's, you know, performing. It's the Super Bowl. He's then heading to the Grammys. And all of a sudden they, they seize him. 
Mm. Right? They seize him. And, um, you know, Jay was very upset by it. He was being held. It didn't look like there was a way to get him out. And you don't have the same due process rights as a non-American citizen um, facing deportation issues. You just don't. Mm -hmm. It's more uphill. Um, it's more uphill when you're in custody. And um, ICE um, and the media were swirling. And um, Jay said, you got to basically drop everything and you got to go. You got to go save this guy. I can't believe this is happening in America. And, um, you know, uh, for a week or so, we worked around the clock and um, long story short, he was freed. That kind of thing changes the system for the better mm -hmm. and sends a message that, you know, there is pushback and it's not just a free for all. The government can't just do what they want and start seizing people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a it was a good day. To make a long story a little less short, because I think it's so interesting and I could just tell by the way you're telling the story. Uh, that it really struck a personal nerve. Um, but a big part of leadership is storytelling. And it's really getting your people hooked on a vision. And the same is probably true, you know, for you as, as a trial lawyer. And but how, how do you size up your audience? And, and in your case, it's often a jury and figure out what story you're going to tell them. Yeah, I mean, you've got to accept the facts of the situation as you think that they're going to play out. So what is the jury going to think? Um, what are they going to know or not know? And, and sort of, you know, you got to face your good facts and your bad facts. Mm. And then you got to ask yourself, what's going to matter to these people? What's going to matter to them? What, why are they going to want to be on one side or the other? What's going to be important to them in making their decision? Um, and then, you know, how can, how can you turn even a simple fact pattern into a story that matters more than just the fact pattern itself? Mm. And if you can sort of, build upon that and then and then tell your story it's going to be gripping because but it's going to relate relate to the people you're speaking to how do you know where they're coming from i mean you haven't really spent a lot of time with each and every single person in that jury how can you is as empathic as you are how do you really know where they're coming from and what's going to connect well, you hope that the jury is a cross-section of the people in the district at some level right um and you know when I'm picking a jury, I'm trying to think basically if I took this person for a coffee or a drink and I explained to them a situation from my perspective, do I think I would have a real audience and I could convince them that, that, that I was right? I mean, I obviously think I'm right or I wouldn't be saying what I'm saying. And so if, if they're the kind of person I think would give me a fair shot over that coffee or that drink, they could show up and say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical coming into this. As long as they are receptive to the idea that I'm right, I think they can be convinced. And it, it's, it's you know, they're an imprint of society. It's almost like asking me if I held a press conference, do I think I could convince the world that my position is correct? This but, is just a microcosm of it. Like, how do you know that you're right when you're saying something? Because you said earlier that you have to stare the bad facts in the face too. What does that mean? And like, how do you get your arms around the bad facts? I say that I know that I'm right. I'm right. It, for me, I'm right. Meaning it doesn't mean that I'm excusing every behavior that occurred in the incident. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, endorsing somebody's conduct that I think would be better left undone. Um, it's, it's just meaning that the story I'm telling to the jury marries that and makes some sense of it in a way that you can still find redemption within the story. Right. Meaning, yeah, uh, the person shouldn't have done that way, but that doesn't mean that, you know, X, Y, Z follows naturally. You've got to look thing, you know, the world is gray. It's not black and white. So it, you go into it thinking, you know, this person did this 
And because they did this, that's wrong. And because they're wrong, they must be punished. And I sort of reject that, you know, avalanche that flows naturally. And, and it's sort of asked, well, why did they do it? And when, what did it mean? And what, put yourself in their shoes and try to understand the world as they saw it on the day in question. And once you start doing that and breaking down why all the actors in the story did what they did, all of a sudden the hero, your client, it, it, you know, escapes free. That's really well said. And why do so many people view the world in black and white? And, you know, how, how can people change? And, you know, how do you get the jury who some of them, if they're a good cross section of society, are also viewing the world black and white? How do you get people to think or to see more of that gray? Great question. I, I mean, one of the reasons people see the world black and white is because it, that's easiest, right? It, we're, we're, you know, we go back to being cave men and cave women, right? We, we, there's some, some things that are sort of endemic to human nature, right? We know what to fear. We know who we love. We know that we need water. The natural way of dividing the world is black and white, is to sort of say, this is what good looks like. This is what bad looks like. I'm on this side of the line. They're on that side of the line. This, these are my people. Those are your people. And so you've got to break through those human um, crutches of people that see the world that way. And the other thing is, I think we all have a responsibility to allow the world to open up more, to challenge each other's beliefs, challenge each other's ideas. Um, you know, the, the whole world should have the ability to hear what other people in, in other parts of the world think and their ideas and and be exposed to people across the political aisle, across the racial aisle, across all disciplines and that's how you flatten society out and make people more gray but hmm. you know you've got to challenge people's core beliefs and what where their default um safety is of saying no 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 this is what bad looks like this is what good looks like and again you've worked with um you know jay-z uh, elon musk and so many other great artists and innovators i mean do they i'm guessing they see the world very gray and they surround themselves with people that have incredibly diverse perspectives and as you know, stubborn and obstinate as they can be sometimes are pretty open-minded when it comes to a new good idea, regardless of where it comes from. Yeah, I think that's true. And you know, th that is part of their special brains. And it's also part of the special lives that they've led where they have the, the option to think, um, they have the time to think and expose themselves. They've been all over the world. They've um, lived many different lives. I mean, They've they've come from, you know, the, the Marcy houses all the way to to Hollywood. I mean, they've come from South Africa all the way to um, being a mogul. I mean, the, the, the journey itself teaches one that the world is just not so simple. If mm -hmm. you are, you know, if you're from a small community that's an insular community and you have to work 20 hours a day working two jobs to support your family, it's going to be harder for you to be exposed to all of the variations and all the new and different ideas. And I just think. You know, I, I hope with, you know, things like Internet, free speech, things like this, that people get exposed to more ideas and you break away those barriers. And so I think this is a great setup for leadership in general. So let's talk more about that. And you've you've been a leader in many kinds of contexts at school, at your law firm at big famous companies like Twitter and, and all leaders take risk, some, some more than others. What's your philosophy around risk taking? Because honestly, Alex, most lawyers I know aren't too fond of risk. And, you know, the, the little appetite they may have had for it seems to somehow be systematically weeded out in law school or by their big law partners. Yeah, well, I mean, there's I, I think people conflate risk and legal risk. I mean, I don't think 
um, legal risk is something that one should take or, or allow oneself to get anywhere near. I mean, real legal risk. Um, mm -hmm. But, but risk of choice, I think, is worth taking. And um, in order to be decisive and to make lots of decisions quickly, and, you know, some people say that I'm, you know, risky when I try cases or risky in um, the ways I make business decisions and things. I mean, to me, it's, it's, you have to be aggressive if you're going to, if you're going to differentiate yourself from the herd, if you're just plodding along and every single decision must have 10 inputs um, and you can only go in the same direction as everybody else's boat. You're never going to beat the other boats. Um, so I think you have to be decisive and being decisive by its very nature is risky because you're operating with imperfect and incomplete information. Mm. And so I've always been, uh, you know, risk taker. You know, it's like a little bit of as a trial lawyer, play to win, don't play safe. Mm -hmm. And I, I that sort of permeates all the decisions that I make, I think, from, you know, my own legal career to, you know, where, where I'm in, you know, decisions of business leadership. Do, do you think a lot of trial lawyers, though, do play it safe instead of playing to win? Well, why? Well, I mean, you know, some people would say it's like the the hypermanic came over here on boats and the, America's a cross-section of the Brits, but, you know, the most aggressive and hypomanic. The uh, people say the, you know, the law students and lawyers are the opposite, right? That's the safest, easiest um, thing to do um, for, for, for a certain sect of people. And so if you have a cross section and then they learn a bunch of rules and they learn, you know, where all the guardrails are, you can become overly pensive, overly ponderous and overly concerned about rules and start seeing rules and limitations that don't exist. Hmm. I sort of start off every fact pattern asking yourself, why can't I do that? What's hmm. the rule that says I can't do that? Um, don't give me the playbook that everybody else uses. It tells me, OK, this is what you do first. And this is what you do second. And this is what you do third. You know, tell me why I can't execute my my plan the way I want to execute it. And all of a sudden, you're carving out a new plan that nobody ever thought of. And in doing so, you're doing something where nobody has the defensive playbook for it. Nobody knows what you're going to do because it's never been done before. And so to me, it does not make sense to do things the way everybody else does. It just mm -hmm. doesn't. To me, that's so cool. And it, it's got to be one of the re like part of your secret sauce. It's got to be the reason why Elon and Jay-Z and other people call you, aside from the fact that you always went. But you always winning is a result of the fact that you're always asking, why can't you do it this way? Am I right? I think it's 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 one um, piece of of increasing one's likelihood of success. Once you have sort of the core set of skills, right, you can dribble, pass and shoot. You know how to try a case. You have enough experience. You're smart enough, um, moderately smart enough, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And the next question is, how come? How are you going to make it so that you're more likely to win than everybody else? And it has to be, there has to be differentiation. And I do think that that is a piece of it. Listen, the other, the, the other piece of it, I guess, that I've spoken about is, or, or referenced is, you know, I do have a, a strong connection with the people that I represent. I believe they're not just clients to me or even just friends. There is sort of a, we are on the mission together. And I've been told, you know, I get, you get a note from a juror or from somebody that was in the audience or something that like, they felt like I was there when it happened. They felt like I was with the other person, not just representing the person. And so there is this sort of passion that you can feel through it. And then whatever, whatever X factors, being a little quick, quicker on your feet or not, or you know, being a little bit more dynamic or not, those things are going to help uh, separate one from another. And one of the other X factors that I, that I see in you and that we've talked about a lot is your ability to keep your cool and your composure. Um, 
But one of the biggest fears, you know, that I hear from a lot of listeners of the show or a lot of young leaders in general is the fear of looking stupid in front of colleagues or, you know, people they don't know. And a lot of iconic leaders in history, like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, used to really lambast their employees right in front of their friends and colleagues to kind of stress test the ideas. Um, but eventually, you know, e even if their CEOs aren't doing that as much these days, everyone's going to have to deal with stress and discomfort and even some asshole bosses along the way. Do you have any advice of how some of these younger up and coming leaders can get more comfortable with that kind of pressure? You know, picture yourself 10 years from now looking backwards and would this pressure matter then, right? And, and, and I guess what I mean by that is everything feels like a big deal in the moment, but it's not. It's just not when, if you can picture yourself 10 years from now looking back. And the other thing that happens with life is you end up, you know, stubbing your toe so many times that you don't freak out thinking the pain's never going to end. You know, you stub your toe and you say, oh, okay, I, I've already done that once uh, yesterday and I've done it now 20 times. I know that this is, it just hurts for a second. It's not going to stay there. And you're never going to learn to sprint faster and move better and do all these things unless you stub your toe because you're going to learn from those mistakes. So one call that I get almost every single day is, oh my goodness, the tabloids are writing a story about me. I'm in trouble, you know, kind of call. And, you know, I remember the first time, you know, you're mentioned in a tabloid story, you think, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, the first time somebody says anything bad about you. Mm -hmm. Over time, you know, the most famous people in the country or the ones that have sort of, you know, accepted that reality, they couldn't, they, they couldn't care less, right? It no longer affects them. And if you can put yourself out 10 years and sort of say, this is part of the stripes of life, that you have to go through these things, or you're never going to, you know, if you, if you never go meet with Steve Jobs, yeah, you're never going to get cut down, but you're never going to go meet with Steve Jobs. And so go take the meeting, go try your hand and learn from it. And so do you think that, you know, actually being young and being a rising star leader is the opportune time to put yourself in these kind of positions where you might stub your toe and you might stretch and you might be able to reflect and think and grow and be more comfortable as time goes on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got a longer path to rebound, a longer path to reset yourselves. I mean, it's easy to say and harder to do, of course. We are, again, back to human nature, conservative. Nobody wants to lose their job. Nobody wants to try to restart, you know, but life is long and there's going to be ups and downs. And if you go at it aggressively, there's going to be bigger ups and bigger downs. And that's just part of it. Everybody experiences that. And so you might as well go for it because, um, you know, you only live once. Awesome. You got time for a, a quick lightning round? Sure. And I'll keep it sport. I'll keep it basketball. Lightning round. Who's going to win the NBA title this year? Boston Celtics. Come on. Is the Joker going to win his third consecutive MVP this year? Voter fatigue. I think it goes back to Giannis or maybe Tatum. All right. What coach is the best leader in the NBA? The best leader. Uh uh pop and his disciples you know okay. bud you know steve even though pop doesn't give very good interviews you're putting them up there yeah but again that's his kind of leadership right i mean look at belichick look at a lot of these guys there is something to the some leaders you know talk a lot some through their own you know gravitas and way of being um you know compel people to fight with them and for them and that's that's its own talent and he has that how about college? Who's the best leader uh, coach in college? Uh, coach K and Jeff Capel at Duke, um, you know, and you can just see it in the way the kids band together and the way that they play. 
you know, again, sort of the remarkable stoic uh, leadership. Um, and you can just you can just feel it the way they play. If Celtics could trade for anyone in the NBA, who would you like to see wearing green? I mean, I, I think that they are exactly where you would want them to be, have the right mix of stars and role players. It, you know, Rob is a little injury prone at center. And so, you know, if you could get a backup significant center, um, you know, that's not a terrible thing. And if you can get anybody that can guard Giannis, um, which there is no such human. Good luck. Um, yeah, but but if you could find Suppose somebody. You could get any anybody, um, anybody, you didn't have to trade for them, but you could have one player on joining the Celtics. Who would you take? I'd probably take um, – um, Draymond or somebody of that ilk who, you know, I, I think is a defensive, you know, person who's been um, to the promised land and won a championship, um, who's got some fire that you think could bring the team up a level. So I'll go with Draymond. You wouldn't be afraid he'd hit one of your play. I love Draymond, but you wouldn't be afraid of some fights during practice. Like, you know, you got to, the passion is going to spill over, you know, you got the passion is going to spill over and I'm not, not condoning any of it, but but you know, I I still uh, I yeah, still fight with Draymond. If you could build an unbeatable team, and I'm kind of sticking with this, selecting the best players ever, who's on that superstar team? I where I grew up and what I grew up watching and who I grew up cheering for were Mike and Scotty. Okay, so so you're gonna have to start with them. Oakley's my guy. You know, he's a great 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 player great role model you know Oakley must be a client there's no way you'd pick him in the top five well I mean again I'm not trying to create you know the dream team you know part three I'm trying to create the team but yes Oakley is a friend and a client Alex, I mean right Alex where's Larry Bird man Larry's a little bit before right my prime of watching was Reggie Lewis my prime like every didn't miss a Celtics game was Reggie um Kevin Gamble Ed Pinckney I mean those were that was my prime um, but no, of course. I mean, Larry was incredible. Um, Magic was incredible. But again, I, I grew up, my posters in my room were Mike. And they, okay. they just were. All right. Fair enough. What about five years from now? And I, I know that you're happy in your career. I know that you've got like this, this dream career, really. But five years from now, you know, would you ever consider being a successor to Adam Silver? I, I it's funny. It's funny you uh, mentioned that. The, um, Listen, I've spoken to people around pro sports about going to do something in pro sports basically every week for many years. So this is not it's not like it's never been on the drawing board. Um, I'm sure I'll be doing something different in 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 a few years. I don't know what that will be. Um, I just know myself. And um, would you be good at that job as an NBA commissioner? I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, your, your career path takes you one direction versus another. But I think I, I would be a good leader of a company or a good leader of a league there. I think that I have the right skills to do that. And as long as it's, again, kind of goes back to the trial lawyer piece, as long as it's something I feel passionate and exciting about something that I can sell something that I can get behind. Um, no, I think, I think I would be a good leader for that. I think you'd be great. Who's a better talking head, Charles Barkley or Stephen A. Smith, or maybe I should say who drives you less crazy. Everybody drives me less crazy than Stephen A. Smith. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you'd like to attend and join deep dive discussions, please visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, we'll see you next week.